I'm, I'm gambling, you know, like I'm putting all my eggs in, in, in a basket. I'm saying I want to be a guy who builds what I want to build. That's the voice of Dallas Gara, owner of Gara Wood. And I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Jobber. Jobber is software to organize and manage your business. From quoting a project, to getting paid, to everything in between, Jobber software brings everything together to make projects easy to manage and customers happy, giving you more time in your day and getting you paid faster. Go to getjobber.com Ethan or check out the link in the show notes for a free 14-day trial of Jobber. And if you try it now, you get 20% off your first six months when you sign up. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Dallas Gara, owner of the Alberta, Canada-based furniture company, Gara Wood. As we finish season three of this show, I wanted to do an episode that was a little bit different. Dallas has a furniture company. He makes truly impressive museum-quality furniture that, in time, could reach the level of the masters that inspire him. But his story is different than our regular episodes because, like so many out there, he is one of those people who have a full-time job but also run a successful furniture company. And in this episode, we focus on the business side, yes, but also on the personal side of what one goes through as they decide if the full-time furniture business is right for them. Before we start, I want to thank Dallas for speaking his thoughts openly and honestly, because people who hear this will know that they are not alone in the personal struggles that they go through in their own furniture journeys. So thank you, Dallas. Now on with the show. I would say, really, I kind of started building things when I was a kid, like I was five years old and I'd be building car models in the basement. And... Uh, I was building, you know, skateboards and skateboard ramps and, but I always felt like I had to be doing something. So whether I was in school or whether I was working, I always had to be, I always felt like I wanted to be busy. So as soon as work was done, I wanted to get out and, and do something. And, you know, I, I rode bike trials, I kickboxed for a lot of years, I painted, I uh, dabbled in little bits of woodworking, like the skateboard ramps and stuff. And I played the guitar, I did all kinds of things. I just like, I always liked being busy, but they were kind of hobbies that didn't really, you know, they didn't really have um, an outcome, you know, like you can only do certain things for so long. Like I loved playing the guitar, but you kind of hit a point where you're just like, well, I'm not going to be <laughs> in a band. I'm not going to be a professional guitar player and, and stuff like that. So. I always was just searching for something to do and I don't know, I just, I always felt this want to make something and build something. And I just, I loved uh, creating things and I'll be honest, I, I love furniture. Like I just think I'll, I'll go to a store and see a piece that I'm just like, how did this person make this? Or I always remember feeling that way. Like I would look at um, an item and just be absolutely blown away how a person made it. And I remember seeing a Maloof rocking chair back in the day and I was just I was just blown away I couldn't figure out how it was all put together like the curves and the joinery and so much of it just intrigued me and it was funny because you know once I got a house it was like you can go to the store and buy something or maybe you can make something I just remember it was <laughs> it was just nothing that really had ever occurred to me like I didn't I never thought to myself I could make something or I could build something or and I never really even questioned it it was just something I I thought was just impossible and and um but then I just started kind of playing around with it bought a house it had a garage and uh started out with a, a little chop saw and I think a, a really cheap table saw and I just started making things and I guess the, the most interesting thing to me about woodworking is you go to a store, you just buy a bunch of wood, whether it's kind of prepped wood or just a raw chunk of lumber, and you can just do whatever you want with it. You can just, there, I mean, there are rules that you have to abide by when it comes to woodworking, but with creativity, you know, the sky's the limit. And it was just such an interesting thing to have a space 
in my house that I could go to anytime I wanted and take this material that I bought at a store and just create something. And it just, it amazed me. And then, you know, once I started learning about it, watching YouTube videos and talking to people at wood stores and friends and stuff, you kind of, you learn more and you just, it really captivated me. I just, I loved that there was, there were no boundaries. I thought it was just so much fun. And, but everything, I, I really like tools. I think wood is beautiful. You know, you pick up a piece of curly ambrosia maple and, and you're just blown away. Like you can't even figure out how it grew like that and the colors. And I just, I'm just completely enamored by woodworking and wood and tools and, and just everything. I, I just love it. So really it was born out of a little bit of necessity and a little bit of just wanting to do something with myself. Cause I, I really am a, a high energy kind of person. And I just, I love being occupied and I love just working with my hands. I love it. So that's kind of how I got into it. Kickboxing and painting. One is very, very high energy. And yeah. I'm not going to tell you which one you have to decide. At all. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually painting was worse because I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't terrible. It's just something, you know, I just, I love just, you know, I, I think that was, was what was missing in my life is I, I had a lot of energy, but I also really liked art and I wouldn't, I don't know if I would call myself an artist necessarily, but there's an artistry component to woodworking. And, and I think it kind of satisfied both. It kind of satisfied a bit of an art side, but it also satisfied working with your hands and getting to construct things. Like I, I have a background in geophysics and so I'm, my job is lots of math and, and stuff like that. And I just really enjoy it and, and modeling things. I don't know. I just, I found it just, it, it hit me in all the right places. It is an escape. You get pieces of wood or you get material for your furniture and you bring it home and your imagination can take you anywhere but it's also a physical thing that you alluded to where you're putting in actual work to build something. It's not digital. It's not somewhere in the cloud. It's actually there in front of you. And the physical work that you put in is what produces the piece. Yeah, you're right. It's tangible, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now, I want to address something that is sort of an elephant in the room for this conversation. And you mentioned it briefly, but I want to touch on it. And that is your job. Yes, you have a furniture company. Yes, you produce furniture. Yes, you are in stores and in magazines and have your pieces out there and are doing really well with that. But you are in this in-between space. And I think a lot of people listening to this show could be a full-time furniture maker and want to be, but they just haven't made that jump. So I wanted to have you on here to talk a little bit about your thought process and your experience with being in the middle there, because I think it will really resonate with a lot of people listening. Now, you can't keep up with the demand for your pieces. and. You're thinking if you leave your job, you could keep up with that demand and push forward in the furniture business, but you also like your job and you aren't sure if you want to leave and you aren't sure if you want to make this your full-time job right now. So enough of me talking about what you're doing. Let's hear about your thoughts on this and, and where you stand. Yeah, that's a that's a really great question, Ethan. And um, I do feel like I'm I'm kind of in a, a weird space. Um, I like you said, I really I really like my job. It's it's fun. It's exciting. I work with a lot of really amazing people and really smart and talented people. And I really I really like it. It pays well. I just I I love my day job. But then my day job is in oil and gas, and you know. Oil and gas is kind of, um, um, I don't know, it, the future of oil and gas could, it could get tough, right? I mean, there are all the new types of energy coming out and, and the focus on the environment, you know, there's, it's challenging, right? And, and you kind of, you know, part of me in the back of my mind is going, well, if oil and gas kind of has a larger downturn in the, in the next while, I might have to have a new way to, to make a living and, 
I just always thought it'd be so amazing to get to do something that you really are passionate about, be able to work with your hands every day and, and uh, be really creative in my day job right now. I think I'm creative, but woodworking I think is a lot more creative. So I think to myself, you know, if, if my day job does take a downturn and I can't do it anymore, I would sure love to take a shot at woodworking, but I'm not at the point where I would want to quit my day job. Like I said, I, I love it. It's very challenging and, and inspiring. And yeah, I, I love the people I get to interact with every day. Now, if I quit my day job and was relying on woodworking fully for income, I would likely have to build a lot of things I don't necessarily want to build. And I think that would be challenging. I think that's a, it can become tough. You know, if someone says, you know, I heard another one of your guests say, if somebody wants 20 of the same chairs, are you going to burn out? Because you're not necessarily building the things you want and you're having, you become more of a production line, right? And so my approach has been in the past six or so years is I wanted to experiment with building one of a kind items. So like I say, I've said no to some projects that I don't necessarily want to build. And I've tried to build the things that I really want to build. And I think having a day job, it gives me that luxury because you're not, I'm not depending on woodwork for my, my main income. Being a part-time woodworker, I have that luxury of being able to say yes or no to certain things. So in that, in that light, I say to myself, well, I should really try to focus on building things I love to build and maybe trying to focus on what I would want to build in the future. Having my day job and woodworking on the side, I'm trying to experiment with becoming kind of known for building something, right? Like if I could become, if I could spend the next five years or 10 years really building a name for myself in building a single item, I think that would really make me happy. I guess my approach has been if I, if I do get to the point where I, where my day job leaves my life, you know, what kind of a woodworker would I be? Would I be the kind of person who is going purely on volume, building whatever somebody asks me, reaching out to stores saying, Hey, you know, I can supply you with 50 cutting boards or 50 stools, or would I want to try and become a person that is really dedicated to a certain item and just kind of become synonymous with building a specific item. And maybe you build other things on the side too, but if you were just really well known and, and that's been my struggle, you know, could you be a woodworker that's purely volume and building whatever people ask you to do? Or could you become almost stepping that boundary from woodworker to artist? And I just, I guess I'm playing with that idea and I, I don't know how sustainable it is, but I'm, I think I have the luxury to right now having a day job that I can kind of play with that idea. And that's what I would hope to do. You know, if, if I, if I didn't have my day job, if I could build rocking chairs for a living and be known for it, you know, and, and that's my, and that's been my balance. My battle right now is, is figuring out, is that possible? You know, <laughs> you said in the beginning of that part-time woodworker, and I feel like mm -hmm. you think of yourself as a part-time woodworker, but if anyone's seen the pieces that you do the time you put in yes you are balancing a nine to five with your woodworking but mm -hmm. i wouldn't really consider you a part-time woodworker because you have a furniture business and if you mm -hmm. left your job tomorrow you would have a business yes you are thinking about it for the future and making plans about where you want to take it, but you're doing it at the same time. And that is why I want to talk with you about this, because you're running those two lives and, and it must be tiring, but it also must be rewarding because you get best of both worlds. Yeah, I, I think, actually, I think you're hitting a really good point. Yeah, when I say I'm a part-time woodworker, it's, yeah, it's not just, <laughs> it's not just a couple hours here and there. It's every day after work and it's every weekend. You know, if anyone phones me 
uh, on a Saturday and they ask what I'm doing, I'm, I'm woodworking. If, if, uh, if my sister calls me at night at 9 PM, you know, I'm woodworking. So it's, <laughs> if my friends are going out, I'm woodworking, you know, it's so you're right. It, it isn't, it is theoretically a part-time job, but time-wise it's, it's a lot of hours. And that's the thing is I feel like if I really want to be ready for a situation where I don't have my day job, I think I have to work very, very hard. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a hustle, even, even though, yeah, I'm not fully doing it all the time. If I, if I did just shut off and, and do just woodworking, yeah, I probably could make a go of it, you know? And I just wonder, I guess where I'm trying to get to is what would that furniture company look like? Would I be that person having to do projects I don't want to do and produce, you know, 50 of something and do projects I don't want to do? Or can I really push it to get myself to a point where, yeah, I, I can build the things I want. And I, I just, I think that's very rare in woodworking. I think there are a few very lucky people who get to build what they really want to build. And I think that's their reputation drives that. And, um, just their, their artistry. Again, you hit the nail on the head. It is, um, it's, I don't know, probably anywhere between 20 and 30 hours a week of woodworking on top of my normal job, you know? So, so yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. There are a lot of furniture makers, especially ones starting out that are doing other things. They are a furniture company, but they're doing either construction work or they're doing projects that they don't want to do side projects that they don't, that they don't really count for their furniture company or they're doing a side job. So I, I always am hesitant when I hear people saying that they don't really have a furniture company because they have another job. You have a furniture company if you're building and selling furniture. Maybe it's not to the level of some people who you aspire to be, but we don't all get to have everything we want when we want it. So people who are biding their time and building a name for themselves like you are and trying to find that correct time to jump in, if you're selling furniture, you have a furniture company. Now, you are taking your time to build that reputation. And that makes sense to some people. Some people love just jumping in without looking and they say, I'll figure it out. And some people want to take that time. They want to take that five years, 10 years, sometimes even a lifetime before they jump in. And people come to building furniture later in life and there is nothing wrong with that. Everybody has their own timeline for making things happen. But let's talk about your situation specifically. Now, you have that luxury of a paycheck from another job. So you have a little bit of breathing room. Yeah, those are um, those are great points. Yeah, I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, I do have a furniture company. And uh, yeah, I do have a bit of a luxury where I can say no to certain things or, um, you know, I, yeah, I mean, it comes to tools too, right? Like you kind of spend a lot more on tools than, than maybe you might otherwise. You have the fallback of a paycheck that yeah. you don't have to jump at every single job. You don't have to maybe take those projects that you're unsure of, which gives you almost a better view of your company because mm-hmm. you can view it from 10,000 feet. You're not, if I don't take this job, will I be able to keep my rent? Will I be able to keep my shop? Can I afford to keep this going? You have that that 10,000 foot view. So with that, it can come with a better understanding of how you want to position yourself in the industry. So what does your interaction with customers look like? Okay. Yeah, that's that's an interesting question because it is hard to say no. It's hard to say no to work. And um, there, are, there are times when, ah, you know, I'm curious about something like, could I build that? Could I make that? And yeah, you kind of, 
you're turning it down experience a little bit, right? And, you know, people will ask me to do something. And I guess when I'm interacting with the client, I do tend toward the more interesting projects. You know, like I, I just built a, a desk. It took me a year and I worked hard on it, but I took the job because I thought it was something that was extremely creative and I got to really put my own flair into it. And um, the person just had such an interesting concept and I was just really excited about it. And at the same time, there was another really big project um, that I just, I couldn't fit in and I felt bad about it. But part of the decision was that I didn't necessarily want to build that other item. And um, yeah, if, if I didn't have my day job, I would have had to probably say, I would have had to say yes to both, I think, but I wouldn't have had my heart in one of them. And I would have been able to put less time into the other. So I think that, that in itself kind of comes back to my earlier points about being able to take work and, and, and say no to other work. And so in, in that case, I got to build something absolutely crazy that challenged everything that I had ever done before. And um, I was allowed to put a lot of time into it, way more time than, <laughs> than I charged for it. But it was something that I, I felt was, it was more, I guess with the projects that I take on, I was able to take one that I felt I was gonna learn more from. It was, it was a little bit selfish, right? Because I took the project that was kind of, you know, gonna be a good resume piece, I suppose, just because it was something I'd never seen before, done before, and it was curves and shapes that just <laughs> were almost impossible to make. So I think when I'm interacting with the client, I, if I feel like I wanna do the piece, I'll do my best to try and work in some kind of interesting element. Or if it's something that's just way too far off of kind of what I wanna do, I might just end up saying no. I'll just kind of say, hey, listen, you know, I, I've thought about doing this piece and I just, I don't know if it's my style and I don't know if, if I can do it justice because it's, I kind of build different things. It's a little bit limiting because I am saying no to experience. I'm saying no to like building something that, that could be very nice. I might learn something from it, but it's like I say, it's just not, it's not in what I feel is my future for what I want to build. So yeah, um, in, on one hand, I think it's a little bit detrimental, but on the other hand, it's that little bit of space to be able to say no really allows you to kind of steer the direction of, of where you want to take your furniture company. And um, I, I do feel very lucky for that. And I hope that I've taken advantage of it. Like I've hope, I hope I'm, I mean, it's a gamble to say no to something, but you know, I just, I guess, I just feel strongly enough about the things I want to build or even the, the shapes I want to create, the, the style I want to create that I just, I just know it's, it's right. And, and so I'm kind of following my gut on that a little bit. I don't want to say yes or no, you're making the right or wrong decision because that's not for me to decide. That's not for anybody to decide. That's your company. And you're saying you get to make those decisions because you have your day job. Yes, you do. But this is also something that people who are only doing furniture struggle with as well. Saying no to projects, saying no to projects is one of the hardest things people have to do because you see that there's money there. You see that there's money on the table. And when you need to make money for your business, it's hard to say no to money, whether it is your first job or it is your 500th job. It's hard to say no to work, but you really hit on an important point. And this is with some companies and not all companies because all companies are different. But if you want to make a name for yourself as a specific type of furniture maker, then you can't take all the pieces that come your way because then you have cast an incredibly wide net somebody who wants to be known for something you want to be known for very intricate solid wood rocking chairs and 
that is the niche you are going for. And you can't say, this is what I'm going for. And then your entire portfolio is square desks that have nothing to do with it made out of plywood. It just is a disconnect from what you're trying to build. And again, there are companies that can build everything and that is their niche. You just have to figure out where you want your company to sit. And that is a hard thing to figure out. You hit on some really good points. And I guess, I guess a big thing, Ethan, for, for me is it's, and it's kind of what I said earlier, it's I'm, I'm gambling, you know, like I'm putting all my eggs in, in, in a basket. I'm saying, I want to be a guy who builds what I want to build. And that I think is the, the biggest gamble I'm taking. I'm, you know, by turning away work and, and, you know, kind of saying, well, nah, I don't really want to build that. I, I do think it's a gamble. I do think it's a risk. If I ever broke away from this and, and said, I'm going to be a full-time furniture builder, that would be my dream. My dream would be to be kind of known for building a few different things and building them really well. You know, and I think there are a few people out there like that. Man, they, they've done such great work and they've pushed their their artistry to the point where, where they've, they've, I think they have it. But it didn't, I mean, it wasn't easy. You know, they worked their butts off to get there. But right now, having this luxury, I want to try it. I want to test it. I want to see if I can can build the things I really want to build. It's selfish, but is that possible? With you building your own company and deciding the things that you want to build comes with figuring out what your style is. With the amount of attention to detail that you put into the pieces and the joinery and the design, I can only imagine that you put the same amount of energy and time into learning about the people whose styles you are emulating. Yeah, as for as for influences, Sam Maloof is obviously a, a huge influence to me. I remember I watched a video of his the video covered a lot of how Sam Maloof became what he was and and how he became a woodworker and and just like his struggle and and it showed just how passionate he was about it and how he was inventive and he was artistic and his joinery was cutting edge and the woods he used were just so beautiful and and the curves and and just the design I just I absolutely fell in love with his work and um, a, a fellow by the name of Hal Taylor, he was a, a guy that was kind of at the forefront of, of designing rocking chairs as well. And, and Sam Maloof was one of his really big idols and influences. And I ended up kind of learning how to make a rocking chair by following Hal Taylor's manual. So this, I mean, Hal's a guy who put together he calls it the rocking chair university and you buy a manual and it steps you through how to build a rocking chair. And I just, the amount of work he put into it is just unbelievable. And um, so huge influence to me just because he was, <laughs> he was like a scientist when it came to rocking chairs, you know, there's parts in, in his manual where it shows, you know, how you develop a, the curve for a rocker and, and what, makes something comfortable and so it's not just like here are some plans go at it it's like step by step you know here's how you do it and and to me i wouldn't be where i am if it wasn't for sam and i wouldn't be where i am if it wasn't for hal you know and and paul at canadian woodworks who actually I took the course with on how to build a rocking chair all those people helped me to get to where i am and just massive influences right and i i i don't know that's the beautiful thing about woodworking is is that you can learn from others and and people are kind enough to to teach you and but i think one of my biggest concerns is is being original <laughs> they've been making rocking chairs for 500 years how do you do something original i don't know if there's a design that hasn't ever been made and you think you're you think you've dreamt up something and no it turns out 200 years ago a guy made that shape or i remember sam maloof he was saying he i think he was he was hiking, I think it was somewhere in South America, and he, he said that he thought he invented this desk with this kind of drawer design, and he, he gets up to this hut, and there's a desk in there that has his drawer design. And so as much as you think you're original, 
you're, you might not be. And that's something I struggle with. Like, I want to be original. I want to put my own twist on things. And, and I'm still struggling with that. And I think that's a big part of my furniture building journey is I need to find my own voice in there. I need to find, you know, what what's different about my stuff. And But, you know, there's just some things you come back to, like the, the basic shapes that Sam had and that Hal Taylor had that are just, they're, they're quote unquote correct. You know, how high a seat should be, how high the arms should be. I mean, just things like that, they're just kind of standards and somehow you have to work around those standards and still make something unique. And it's hard, it's very difficult. And, um, but I'm, I'm trying, I'm doing my best. I think I've made a few designs that I haven't seen before and I hope they're original. I hope they're, I hope they're inspiring to other people. And I do my best to try to, try to build something that is somewhat unique, but I am constrained usually within the shape of a rocking chair and it's, it's pretty specific. So it, it is difficult. If you look at all of those furniture makers that you mentioned, you can definitely see a very strong design line through your work and theirs. And I do want to talk seriously about the other thing that is very hard for furniture makers. Yes, finding the ability to say no to pieces, but also pricing your work. And you find yourself in a little bit of a strange position because yes, your pieces are original, but they are inspired by somebody. They're inspired by Maloof. They are yours. You're not doing knockoffs, but they do have a touch of that other person's design. And when that happens, people automatically put your pieces up against another person who has that name, who has that reputation, who you can't possibly at this point in your life add up to. But all the same amount of work goes into those pieces as the people with the bigger brand names. So how do you price your pieces knowing that they're being judged against a reputation that you can only aspire to at this point, but you still have that time, you still have those materials, you still have those hours into building the piece? Yeah, that's a, that's a really, it's a really great question, Ethan. Um, yeah, there, I do feel challenged to kind of stand out, you know, I mean, I'm not the only rocking chair maker, and I haven't been doing it for that long. Um, in my attempt to put original details and joinery into, for instance, a rocker, it takes me a long time. You know, there, there are some rocking chair designs that I'll draw out on a piece of paper and then I'll have to build templates and then I have to figure out how to make them. Um, I recently made a rocking chair that took me probably five or six different wooden jigs to create the new joinery. And it was very time intensive. You know, I was, I, was, I think that rocking chair took me probably close to 200 hours to design, build all the templates for, and to build all the router jigs and just experiment with. It, it's hard because yeah, I am measured up against some incredible chair makers who've been making them for, for many years and they have a, a stronger name than I do. And they, they have a certain iconic um, value and I'm not there yet. And that's what I hope to do. That's what I hope to build. So at the moment, I would say there are a few people out there who got some really, really quote unquote expensive chairs for a very good price. What I'm hoping to do right now is I, I'm trying to figure out how to make my chairs um, relevant. And I just hope that eventually maybe someone will see them and I think it's, you know, for a person to look at two chairs, they might go, well, they kind of look the same to me. But then if I walked you through it, I would tell you, well, this one's got this joint and this one has this joint and this one's this wood and that's this wood. And this one sits a little bit different. And this one, you know, cups your arms a little bit more. This one rounds your back a little bit more. And just, there's a lot of detail that goes into it that might not be seen. So I guess part of me is, is hoping that maybe someday I'll have that chance to to explain these details to people and i try to do it through social media and youtube and and being involved in some articles where i do my best to explain maybe why my stuff is different and um 
you know, you, hopefully you get that opportunity to kind of say, well, yeah, I, I, I think I did invent this joint, <laughs> you know, or something like that. So I think I'm still in that in that space where I'm I'm trying to get my name out there. I'm trying to make my rocking chairs compared to others and and hopefully I'll get to the point where I have designed something unique or there's an element of my chairs that that is, um, you know, sought after. There is a sticker shock. I mean, there are times when people, they'll see how much I charge for a rocking chair and they're like, oh, wow, that's a lot of money. And I sympathize with that because I know when I used to feel like that about furniture, I'd go, how the, how the heck is, you know, that priced it that much but then when you think well it's the time it's it's the wood it's the business insurance it's it's keeping your website going buying tools all this stuff it, it really adds up and there's a lot of overhead that i think people just don't see and and i i appreciate that but you know people might think uh something should be worth x dollars and you kind of go it's like five times that and I'm barely making money, you know? So it, it's tough. It's, it's a really hard balance, but you know, I, I guess I, when I look for clients, I, I do, I do find that I seem to gravitate to people who are kind of collectors, people who you go in their home and they've got a lot of pieces and, you know, they'll walk me around their house and they say, well, this, this guy made this and we got this commissioned and it, so I guess I do gravitate towards people who are, maybe on that kind of more collector side or, you know, they're looking for kind of a, an artistic piece for their home. And yeah. So I think hopefully my, hopefully my pricing will be able to reflect that someday if I can reach that right audience. And so, yeah, that's, that's where I'm hoping through maybe social media or through magazines or something like that, that maybe people will get to know my work. And I don't know if a lot of people realize, but like everything's hand done, you're doing it by hand and, and, testing and fitting and carving every square inch like i'll go over a rocking chair you know with a cut saw shaper and then 40 grit sandpaper and then 80 120 150 um all the way up to 400 over every square inch and it's it's all hand done and i don't know i guess that's the i guess that's something that i hope someday will be appreciated about the stuff that, that I make is that it's it's just like every single piece I touched, I touched every corner, every curve, like everything was thought about. There was no, there wasn't a single square inch on a rocking chair that wasn't thought about 50 times where, you know, I just went, ah, oh, is that the right shape? Is that the right size? Does that look good? Step back, you know, is that, does that curve make sense? Um, ah, I'm going to remake that piece because I, I'm just not happy with that curve. I want to make sure it flows perfectly. And, you know, it's, it's just not, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I think it's, I think it's interesting to build something that, that is 100% absolutely handmade. And, and I don't know, I, I guess it's, hopefully I get to tell my story about that someday, you know, where, where I'll, I'll get the chance to just talk about the process and, and, you know, be able to to say no that I remade that arm six times because I, I didn't like exactly how it felt when I sat in it I felt like it was poking my elbow and then it was kind of hit my wrist funny and I just kept working it over and over and over again until it felt perfect and it looked perfect and I don't want to blow your mind but you are telling that story right now. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Oh, dang, man. No, I know. And that's that actually, to be honest with you, Ethan, this is, is what's blowing my mind. And that's what scares me so much because I'm saying I've never said this stuff to anybody before. No one's ever asked me these questions before, you know, in such detail and really got down to it with me. So when you're asking me these questions, I'm sitting here going, ah, oh, it's a great question. And I think about it all the time. And I'm just like a little bit um, overwhelmed by, by, getting to answer them and talk about it. So I guess I'm just trying to be honest. <laughs> being honest with your pieces and being honest with your story reflects back on being honest in your business. And this isn't a coaching session. I'm not teaching you how to run your business right now, but you should take that honesty and reflect that in your pricing. And that's something that comes with time. And that's something that comes with understanding yourself and understanding your business. And maybe it's not there at this moment, but 
your pricing reflects directly on the work that you do. And it reflects directly onto the pride that you have in your work. And it reflects directly into the time it took not only to build that one piece, but to build your skill set, to build your reputation. That price is the only way to showcase that entire life of building. Yeah, it's good, man. Yeah, no, and I agree with you. And I, I agree with you 100%, man. It's it's just uh, having that confidence to, to um, you know, really push the price on something and, and kind of challenge yourself to be comfortable with it. I'm still finding my voice and my style and stuff. And I feel like I, I owe a lot of what I do to other people. And, you know, I, it's, it's hard to, to get yourself into position, being comfortable capitalizing on that. Like, I, I want to make sure that I'm making something that, that is unique and, and well-made and, and then, yeah, getting that, just getting that confidence to just say, Hey, I, yeah, I think, I think this is, this is really good quality. And I think it's an heirloom piece. And, and um, I think, it'll be really well enjoyed and hopefully the customers yeah hopefully they see that and that's that's the that's the dream i guess <laughs> you're not alone in feeling this way and and it specifically shows in the type of furniture you make because you make going back to the beginning of this conversation when you were painting you are making art it is furniture it's functional furniture but the way you're thinking about it is as a masterpiece. And everybody should aspire to make their furniture a masterpiece, but the way you're going about it is not production furniture. It's not pushing it out there. And pricing art is incredibly hard. And I've said this in a past episode, I believe, and I say this to people all the time, but when you're pricing for art, when you're pricing for a painting, it's not just the canvas and the paint and the materials that go into it. You're not charging for the hours that go into the painting. You're charging for something different. You're charging for that name. You're charging for that recognition. You're charging for the gallery that it's in. You're charging for the other people that have bought it. You're charging on your brand name rather than the pieces that make it into a whole. And so that type of pricing is not easy. That type of pricing does not come from an Excel chart. That pricing does not come from a material list. And this is a hard conversation because there are so many different types of furniture companies out there. There are production line furniture companies. There are one-off type furniture companies where people are doing functional art and are selling it like that. And there are a lot of companies in between. And I can't say this enough. Yes, there are good business practices. There are practices that people should follow, but that doesn't mean every single person should follow every single one because every single business is not the same. And it can be frustrating for people to hear because everybody wants that quick, easy answer that this, this, this is what you should do but it's not generalized like that. Everybody has a different company. If you figure out where your company sits and what you want your company to do and how you want your company to operate, that's when it becomes easier. That's when there are specific things you can do to make that company prosper. But you need to get to that level where you know what your company is all about. One of the most challenging things is to kind of embrace the idea of being an artist. You know, I don't know. I didn't woodwork to become an artist. I woodwork to, to fit a, a need in my home, you know, and it was never about um, trying to build something beautiful. It was about trying to build something 
functional. But then I just slowly got into a, a space where I got attracted to building things that are beautiful and they take me way more time than they should. And I guess I'm just, I'm comfortable with that right now because that's just, I love making what I'm making right now. And, and people do say that to me, they say it's, it, that's a work of art. And I kind of, I don't know, I have a, I've always just had a hard time really embracing that. And, and maybe that's, that's the struggle when you are emulating other people and, you know, there are better rocking chair makers out there than me. And, and they're, you know, I, I've learned so much from those other people, you know, I want to, you know, I want to stay humble and, and realize that I'm here because of a lot of other people, but then you also do need to bridge that gap where you kind of say, yeah, but maybe, maybe my stuff is good. You know, when you walk into a room and see, you know, a chair I've made, I, I kind of, yeah, they're, it's kind of surreal. You know, I, I guess I look at them and kind of go, yeah, that's, it's actually really good looking. You know, it's not only, it's not only functional and comfortable, but man, it's, it's pretty, you know, and I think that is where my comfort is, is challenged. And I hope I can get there someday where I, like I said, I can kind of make designs that, that are different enough that I can feel feel really good about it and feel proud of what I've made and always honoring those people who got me to where I am. But, you know, can I differentiate myself to the point where I feel like, yeah, you know what, this is, this is my art. And maybe, maybe some pieces are in fact art and, and maybe they can garner a little bit more money because, you know, it, it was made as a functional piece, but also as something that, yeah, can just be, an heirloom kind of fixture in your home that, that is actually, you know, considered art. And I'm just like, okay, I, I guess, you know, and I, I appreciate so much that people would say that, but, you know, I, I know, I know I need to, I know I have to get to the point where, you know, I, I do embrace that and, and I still pay homage to those who got me to where I am. And I think it's, it's just a balance, right? The truest thing that I can tell people, and this isn't you specifically, this is everybody, is that there's always going to be somebody who you think is better than you. And it's up to you to prove your worth to yourself because you're always the last person to see it. You're always the last person to say, this piece is good enough. I am good enough. I'm there. I've made it to where I want to go. Not saying you should plateau at that, but you should be able to acknowledge what you're doing. And that is, that is, that is one of the biggest pitfalls that I see for people where they, they are too hard on themselves and they don't they don't give themselves the benefit of the doubt that they're their harshest critic and they're and you're you're never you're never going to succeed if you always are putting yourself down so my biggest thing in in life is is trying to be humble man because i know I know I'm here because of a lot of other people and I know I've said that but I always want to make sure that I'm giving those people their, their due and, oh man, but yeah, you're hitting on some really incredible questions and I, I, I appreciate it, man. I, I really do. I mean, well, you are humble and I can hear that. And I can hear that with you saying, I hope to one day, I hope, I hope. And we've heard that through your entire interview and I understand where you're coming from. And I do because I know those feelings. I understand those feelings, but that hope is only a roadmap that you've laid out for yourself. You could say, I'm there. You could just wake up tomorrow and say, I'm there. Now I am at not the place that I want to end up, but I'm at the place where I'm supposed to be and start thinking about your work, your company, your contribution to the furniture world as 
I'm where I'm supposed to be. And this is my company and I can hope to become better and I'm not ending here. But all those plans that I have in my head, one day I'll charge more, one day I'll be able to explain my pieces and the process to people. One day I'll be able to this, one day, that day could be today. And it's not just you who's experiencing this. It is a majority of the furniture world. It is a lot of people out there who feel like their business, their furniture company isn't where it's going to be. And it's never going to be where you need it to be. It's never going to be to that point where this is the end. You can coast from here on out. Once you hit that next level of success, the one that you've been reaching for your entire life, there's another level above it. There's something that you have to keep pushing. There's harder projects. There's more clients. There's more demanding things. There's more demanding designs. So it's not, it's not something that you're dealing with alone. It's something that is out there. And it's just something that you have to overcome yourself because no, nothing I say, nothing anyone else can say can get you there. It's just your own personal journey and you have to decide where that starts and stops. Yeah, that's a really, that's a, that's a great point, Ethan, because I mean, yeah, I, I know. Yeah. And I think that's maybe part of the drive too, is, you know, if I'm done a piece, I always go, oh, I could have done this a little bit better. Oh, next time I'm going to do this. And I think that's what fuels me. Cause I mean, when I'm done a rocker, I'm like, oh, I got to get the next one because I want to, I just want to make this a little bit different. And I want to, I think this would be more comfortable and, Ooh, haven't seen this before. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll try to try to make this curve just wrap around just a little bit differently here. And I still find it exciting. And I, yeah, I think there's, there is a, that's a good point. And, is that you know you need both right you need the you need the confidence to say all right i'm ready to do this but you also need the you know the humility to step back and go i can do better you know so where do you where do you decide that that, that jumping off point is you know is because a lot of times I, I i look and i go oh man i i got to i got to build something better to to get into this gallery they're looking for you know their stuff is so incredible i have to i have to do something incredible and and um but then yeah at the same time you kind of go well yeah where when do i finally just say yeah this is this is good stuff i do think it's a balance where um yeah i want to be able to keep inventing and making new things new designs and but at the same time yeah you're right you have to hit a point where you go you know what maybe my pieces are, are worth this amount of money and and maybe i can you know really yeah yeah take that leap and kind of really take yourself to that next level so yeah i, I think I, I battle with that a lot and and i think a lot of people do and i, I know i've seen pieces that people make that are just unbelievable and i see the price and i'm just like man you could you could be charging so much for that. You know, you could, you could retire and just make these things over and over again. And it's, it's so interesting to, to think about how the different ways that, that it can go. And I just hope that, you know, when my day job is, is done that, yeah, maybe, maybe I built enough of a, a following or, a, you know, creative designs or unique designs that, that I'll be able to do that leap and just, and be able to, sustain myself that way so now yeah you brought up a really good point man that's that's uh um i think that's very important <laughs> i usually ask at the end of the interviews for people who are starting out for people who already have a company what is advice that you would give to those people but you are in a unique position to speak to those people before they've jumped into a furniture business before they've taken that leap because that is where you are you are still biding your time you are still building your foundation not only in the pieces that you're making and the skills that you're developing but also in the way you're structuring your business the way you're figuring out every single part of both the furniture and the business side so for people listening who are in your position who love their job, who genuinely love their job, but they also love furniture. 
what advice would you give to those people listening from your own experience on how to deal with that balance? I think my answer is going to be a little bit cliche, but um, I've done my best to try and build the things I really want to build. There's, there's something to be said about building things that excite you and that you're, you're just, you want to get back out on the shop and, and keep working on that thing because you're, you really want to do it. So I think in a situation where you have a daytime job and your woodworking might be limited, the actual number of physical hours that you can be in the shop doing something, I really, for myself, I just, I really try my best to be building something that really inspires me, that I'm really excited about. And kind of goes back to your earlier questions, you know, what do you do about taking a job that you don't necessarily get excited about? And it's like, hopefully you can just focus on building the things you want to build. And um, I guess the other thing too is in having this conversation with you, Ethan, is just I guess having the confidence to charge what things are worth. Don't be afraid to, to say, Hey, this, this material cost me this much. And, you know, it took me this long and yeah, that, that's kind of what it costs. And I think if you can really be building the things that you want to build and that, that make you want to spend time in the shop, I think for myself has really been key. That's what keeps me going is because if, if I had to be out in the shop building things I don't want to build, I don't, I wouldn't have much drive because after the end, at the end of the day, when you have, uh, you know, you've spent nine or 10 hours at your job and you're super tired and, and you're trying to figure out what to do with your evening. Do you want to go have a nap or do you want to get out into the shop? You know, if I'm building something exciting, that's what gets me out there. And, um, and also kind of diversifying, I guess, you know, I've, I've, I love teaching. Like I love, um, at my day job, I, there are some roles that are uh, in mentorship and I really like it. So, you know, I've tried to get into YouTube a little bit and, and, um, just showing people how to do things, you know, that that's been an interesting angle for myself that, you know, instead of just going to the shop and turning on the radio and just working and then leaving, yeah, there are times that I'll get the camera out and I'll, I'll film a video on how to do something and maybe I'll draw some pictures to try and explain what's going on. And I really like that. It's kind of mixing it up a little bit to, um, you know, not only be making stuff, but also learning and helping others learn. And I've really enjoyed that, actually. I I love putting together videos on, you know, how to make a Maloof joint or how to, you know, my technique on, on routering certain things. And yeah, I, I think that has been a great addition in in my woodworking is just yeah trying to take a little bit of a, a mentorship role and just maybe teaching people so yeah my biggest piece of advice is are hopefully if if you can build what you want to build and what makes you excited and and also maybe diversify what you're doing a little bit in my case it was yeah just taking a bit of a teaching role and and explaining what i'm doing and that really yeah, because it, it it engages people too, you know, on Instagram or on YouTube, I'll get people asking really technical questions and then they'll email me and ask some stuff and it gets me thinking, you know, and then when they ask questions, I, I think, oh, maybe I wonder if I can do this a little bit better. Maybe there's a, a different design or something. It just, it just makes me think more about what I'm doing. And so for myself, I, I really enjoy that. Sharing the things that you've learned and in kind getting other people to share their stories, their experiences, builds a community and really helps people because it is a solitary job sometimes, furniture, and you forget that there is a big world out there. And you have really shared a lot today. You've shared past the numbers, past the technical side, you shared your personal experience, your heartfelt experience, how you're feeling is a hard thing to do. Just as hard as it is to put together a joint on a rocking chair, it's hard to share your intimate thoughts with people out there. But I know that people are listening to this and it's really hitting home. It's really resonating with them because you are not alone in the feelings that you're having about building your business how to build your business, when to say no, pricing, and when to take that leap. So 
thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for your honesty and thank you for sharing your story with everybody listening. Thank you, Ethan. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.